Let us pray. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The first scripture reading today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, I'm sorry, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those with him, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. I love this passage from Mark, and I love it for a couple of reasons. The first reason I love it is because 10 years ago this summer, hundreds of people saw their prayers for healing answered when our little son was born. 
He was born happy and healthy and with two great hands in spite of everything that the doctors said. So any stories or imagery about hands or healing in scripture really gets me now as a result. And I just love it in scripture. When Jesus sees people others are ignoring, people who are in pain or who are struggling to get by, I felt like that person that nobody sees or cares about. And the people who saw me in those moments are the ones in whom I have most clearly seen Jesus. Not only that, but it really annoys the blind followers of rules and the this is how we do it club when Jesus walks past them to be with the people that they see as less than. There's something very satisfying about watching Jesus annoy the Pharisees. So I just love this passage about the healing of the man with the withered hand. It doesn't say what was going on with his hand, if he'd had polio or arthritis or even amniotic band syndrome like my son, but that's not the point of the passage. The point is that Jesus is so compassionate in every moment that it makes people angry. Think about it. That is the crux of the issue in the latter part of this passage. Jesus sees someone in need of compassion, of healing, of justice, and he grants that to this man. Because he's Jesus. Of course he does. So what if it's the Sabbath? How in the world could healing someone be considered a bad thing? Deuteronomy says that the Sabbath is given as a matter of making sure that everyone is taken care of, that everyone gets a break. It's a remembrance that once God's people were oppressed, but God delivered them so that they might have rest. Rest and work, freedom and bondage. That is what we're talking about in this passage here. Now, in the first section of our passage, Jesus and the disciples were just taking a walk through a grain field, and they grabbed a bite to eat because they were hungry. It's still in practice today in Galilee that farmers leave some unharvested grain at the edges of their fields for travelers and hungry folk. So the Pharisees aren't upset that Jesus took grain that wasn't his or the disciples took grain that wasn't theirs. What they're upset about is that they were doing work on the Sabbath. Now, if you've never walked through a grain field, I strongly encourage you to try it someday. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. What in this scene could possibly be labeled as work? But in the centuries since God had first mandated that people set aside one day out of every seven for rest, there had been great debate about what exactly constituted rest and work. And out of this debate arose a legal system so complicated it could be argued that something as innocuous and restful as plucking a few heads of grain in a field could be construed as unlawful work on the Sabbath because the disciples were threshing the grain with their hands. The Pharisees had put their human interpretations of God's law above the human needs of the people. And instead of creating rest, they created so many rules that it caused more work to follow them than to simply rest. 
They weren't prepared for anything that didn't fit into their neat little box of right and wrong, even if their neat little box of right and wrong wound up contradicting the original intent of the law. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in part one of this narrative is a bit unusual. It doesn't seem at first to be quite a direct answer to the Pharisees' issue. He hearkens back to when David and his men were hungry and they couldn't find anything but holy bread to eat, bread that had been consecrated, that had been sacrificed. It was set aside. But the hunger, the physical need of David and his men was greater than the need to adhere to the ceremony surrounding that bread. Like David, Jesus was following the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law as interpreted by the people trying to follow it. Again, as he dismays these hard-hearted Pharisees by healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus reminds everyone that God's good work of compassion and healing is more important than human rules and regulations, even those that come based out of Scripture. Jesus, the self-proclaimed Lord of the Sabbath and Son of Man, did not appreciate the Pharisees' complicated interpretations of God's law. If anyone had the right to be offended by too much work on the Sabbath, surely it is the Lord of the Sabbath himself. But instead, he charged that the ceremony that had come to surround the idea of Sabbath was not to be put ahead of the actual needs of the people. Just as the well-being of David and his army was more important than the consecration of that holy bread, the well-being of the disciples was to Jesus more important than the Sabbath ceremonies observed by the Pharisees. The well-being of the man in need of healing was more important than human Sabbath laws. And this is not just a one-off instance of Jesus warning people to address the earthly needs around them when and where they arise. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that anyone whoever ignores the sick or the poor or the naked or the imprisoned ignores him. The greatest commandments, according to Jesus himself, are love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing complicated or hard to remember. Just love. Time and time again, Jesus puts love and care of the real needs of people above the rules and regulations and lists and ceremony of man. Sabbath is good. Sabbath was made for humankind. It is a valuable, needed rest and reminder of God's goodness. But if the Sabbath is creating, rather than addressing needs and distress, something has gone very wrong. Sabbath was originally about justice for a formerly enslaved people. To use Sabbath to essentially enslave people to a bunch of rules completely defeats the purpose of it. The second reason I love this passage is because the version of this story of the grain field we see in Luke 6, 1 through 5, is the first passage I preached on in seminary, so it has a special place in my heart. And in that sermon, I preached on, just on that first part about the grain field. And I was all set to preach this great sermon 
right, on how we budding pastors at seminary had to learn how to not get too set in our ways so that we can listen to the Holy Spirit. And the day before I was supposed to preach that sermon, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. And as a marathoner myself, that was a pretty big deal. And the next day, runners around the world all planned to wear marathon race shirts as a show of support for our fellow runners who had been injured, killed, or otherwise affected by that violent incident. And that posed a very difficult problem for me. Because, see, I have a ton of race shirts, right? But I had bought a new outfit to preach in that morning in class. I was going to look the part of a real preacher because real preachers look nice when they're up front. They don't wear their gross old race shirts that they sweat in who knows how many times. So first I thought I would just change into my race shirt when I got home. That would be good enough. I could still wear the clothes that I had carefully picked out for that morning to keep up the right appearance for class. And then I could show my solidarity later. Or maybe I could put it under a button-down shirt, kind of like Superman, right? But then in that funny way that God does... God worked up a conviction in my heart that I was doing the same stupid thing I was getting ready to tell all of my classmates not to do. God took my own sermon and preached it right back to me. And I learned two lessons that morning. The first is that the best sermons are the ones that I have to learn the hard way while they're being formed and developed. I can almost guarantee you... That whenever you hear me preach something that really feels like it sticks, it's because I have screwed it up myself and I had to wrestle with it all week long. Sometimes I preach sermons I really don't want to be hearing myself say, dear ones. The second thing I learned is that Jesus doesn't always color inside of the lines and neither should we. You see, there were other runners and people from Boston there at my school and in the congregation I was serving in at the time and all over Pittsburgh. Our whole country, especially a subculture I'm actively involved in, was shocked by that news. People I run with were there that day running the Boston Marathon, the day of the bombing. I was sure to run into people that morning who would recognize why I was wearing a race shirt. And I would be offered an opportunity to pray and to give support, an opportunity that my own silly preconceived notion about my outfit, of all things, would have squished. Preaching a message the day after something like the Boston Marathon bombing started to feel empty to me if I didn't, at least in some small way, acknowledge the trauma that happened to some of the people around me even if it messed with the sermon and the ceremony and the outfit that I had already planned in my head. Like the Pharisees, we like rules. They make us feel safer. They make us feel secure, like we're in control. They make some of our decisions easier. But before you start thinking that I'm even more of a rule-hating rebel than you had realized before, please remember my silly wardrobe dilemma. I like rules and plans and ceremony. There's a reason I'm Presbyterian, my friends. I like to know what to expect. I have school-aged kids in my house. I would be nuts to treat rules too carelessly. Without rules, things would go south very, very fast. But 
and please don't have my Presbyterian credentials revoked for my saying this, rules and order and ceremony, my friends, are not the end-all be-all to living the Christian life. People are leaving the church in droves because they are tired of hearing all rules and very little love. Don't legalize this thing because it's against our religious rules. Unlegalize this thing because it's against our religious rules. You can come here, but here are the rules you have to follow. Look like this. Dress like that. Talk like me. Vote like him. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We, the church, are all too often but a noisy gong in the ears of the world around us. We must find a way to move on from being that noisy gong to being a voice of comfort. That much is clear from this passage. And that's where it gets exciting. We have a unique opportunity to be that voice of comfort. At the risk of sounding corny, I've never been too worried about that anyway, I assert that we are the future of the church. Those of us sitting here right now. It all leans on us. This particular church will sink or swim because of what we do from this morning onward. The church in our country and around the world is dramatically affected by how we choose to live out our calling here as a church family. God has called us into leadership at this very moment to help guide God's people. I don't care if you feel like you're a leader or not. You are one of the people who cares enough to be sitting in these pews today, and that, therefore, earns you a spot as a leader. As we discern our future together as a congregation, let's not forget that first and foremost, we are called to care for God's people. We aren't just some sort of religious referees running around the field of life, blowing our whistles at every infraction. That's not our calling. That's God's job. Our calling is to reach out and take care of the children of God, no matter what they look like, dress like, talk like, live like, smell like. We are called to expect the unexpected and set aside our ceremony when the unexpected inevitably happens. That means... We've always done it that way. It's not a valid excuse anymore, dear ones. Life is full of surprises, both joyful and devastating. And in attending to the concrete needs of those around us, needs of food, comfort, brotherhood, water, shelter, love, we are called out of our comfortable rules, ceremonies, and plans in order to live out a truly Christian life. Church is not always pretty. Can I get an amen? Amen. It rarely, well done, Presbyterians. It rarely follows our rules or expectations. There will always be someone or something unexpected knocking at your door. If there isn't, you might want to revisit how to make your door more welcoming. And the unexpected ones will always matter, even if it's not food pantry day. They will always matter, even if they are interrupting your sermon writing routine. They will always matter, even if they are sitting during the standing parts or standing during the sitting parts. Even when they're saying something completely off the wall in Sunday school or Bible study, they matter, and what they have to say matters. They will always matter, even if you can't hear the sermon over the sirens or the dog barking or the squeaky pews or whatever. 
caring for the needs of and embracing the people around us must be our highest priority because it's Jesus' highest priority. And because Jesus shows us that same love and respect. Jesus sets aside the rules and the ceremony for us so that we might truly experience and celebrate the Sabbath. So let us go and do the same for others. Amen.